Uh, our first session today uh, features two speakers uh, who are badly in need of introductions, uh, but they won't get lengthy ones from me. Donnacha O'Coran, Professor Emeritus uh, of Early Irish History at University College Cork, is a well-known figure in Irish studies. He's published many seminal studies. His book, uh, Ireland Before the Normans, uh, has been a central part of medieval studies uh, in all university curricula for many years. But he also has published many important articles which involve reading texts in new ways and exploring texts uh, and contexts. Uh, he has written much on uh, Irish regnal matters, on the church and on early Irish law, uh, and was um, uh, heavily involved, indeed was one of the instigators of the Celt uh, Initiative in Cork, which has made so many texts uh, available uh, to us uh, uh, online and in searchable uh, form. He also is the founder of the Medieval Academy of Ireland uh, and editor of the journal uh, uh, Peritzia. Uh, and his talk today is on, which I don't have, title? No title. He doesn't have a title. Uh, so um, in any case, uh, Professor Donoghue O'Coran. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very honoured to be invited to this conference. And uh, historians don't usually get to speak at conferences like this. Learn um, <clears throat> here uh, just a few facts about it. Uh, it is 67 folios of it survive. It's separately mounted so we can figure out the details, the detailed manuscriptology of it. It's an Irish minuscule and it has three scribes. A, because we don't know the names of two of them. A, uh, wrote about 12%, and he's in the beginning. M wrote about 60%, <clears throat> and long comes finally H. He's called H because he was so-called by Best, who called, because he did a lot of work on the homilies in the book, and he wrote about 28%. You could predict that, couldn't you? Um, Best and or Curry uh, I clearly identify M with Mwelwide Makelekwir Mekwin Mamoth of Clon Macnoise. Now, the reasoning behind this is, is simple. On page 55b, there is a Probatio Penae, and it says Probatio Penae Mwelwide Makelekwir Mwelwide Mekwin and Mamoth is alleged. And another one on page 70, Probatio Penae Moervede and so. And in, um, when the book was re-handled, uh, O'Quinine, who died in 1347, who did the work of re-inking bits of it, uh, wrote an, or a prayer for Moervede, Orad the Moervede Mechanical Mechmech in the Mok. Rushgrave August Rushgrave a lovrev eggs of live in the verse and he wrote that on the 25th of March 1345, as he very kindly tells us. So <clears throat> these scribes, um, uh, the part played by these scribes, um, and uh, how the work is divided up, and who they were, are the central questions. The great Tournais intended to place H in the middle of the, th in the 13th century on the basis of Texian circle. 
but more recent scholarship from Green to McOwen is at one in holding that nothing much can be told of his date from the language of the text he uses. So that that linguistic argument falls down. Now, Tommaso Concanon has, has written principally about this, and he identifies H not with the homilist, but with Merle Widder, in a striking paper published in 1975-6 in the journal Aikshire. His reasons. Hmm. Doubt about the probatio penae, in other words, a piece of subjective paleography. Now, I thought this might irritate the paleographers. But what is not much better than a reasonable doubt has to a degree, one could say it's hardened to a certainty, at least among some. Now, his ideas were firmly rejected by Hans Oskam, who did a lot of work in the manuscript, and he thinks M is Malveda and Malveda is M. Despite the bad press, and H has, a very, has had a very bad press, um, he, he was regarded as interfering, dull, etc. And he was playing around with a manuscript that he should have had more respect for, like us. When his stock has been rising recently, and Professor Gregory Turner indeed treats him with the seriousness, alone I think, treats him with the seriousness that he deserves, H is an editor, a commentator, an academic, a scholar, a scribe, and he was doing much what his predecessors were doing before him, co copying, glossing, citing different texts, putting in footnotes, doing the sorts of things that scholars do. Cecilia O'Reilly thought that O'Concannon's identification of Mervera with H was supported by convincing arguments. And she holds that Tournaison's theory that Thornbow Kuhlner is a conflation of, in the in, in here, is a conflation of two ninth century texts. She holds this to be arbitrary. We'll see why there might be reasons for this. In a perceptive article, Gerard McOwen in uh, 1995 has brought much to the debate, and he tries to place H in another environment. And let me quote what he says. A further consideration that argues against the theory that H was working at Clonmac Noise at a date not far removed from the time of the original writing of L.U. is that he is unlikely, it is unlikely that the monastery of Clonmac Noise would have been possessed at the same time of so many alternative versions of so many texts. Now that, that's what comes from working in an Irish university library for too long. To judge by the activity of M, one should draw the exactly opposite conclusion. If you are going to get variants of texts anywhere, you are likely to get them in a place like Clonmac Noise. So then, was the, was the manuscript written in Clonmac Noise? Clonmac Noise, yes, or Curry, best. Oskamp, perhaps. Southeast Ulster, Northeast Leinster, or Concannon. And I think David Dumble has advanced Monaster Boyce as, a, as an origin. And most of the time they're talking about the, where, where the provenance of the texts that are in LU. But that is a useless argument in determining origin because texts travel freely. So now this has caused me to have a look, and I want you to look at your handout now, at 
the background in Clon McNoise and the background to Moel Widem or Kaelokit Now, whether he is M or whether he is H doesn't really deeply affect my argument. First of all, the family to which he belonged could be described as grandees, the very top of clerical society and scholarship in Ireland. And in the first part of your handout, genealogies of Mequin the Mok, which all of which are embedded in the annals, I give a long list of entries in the annals by which it is attempted by the Mequin the Mok to place themselves genealogically. And they are in, oh, I start with the latest ones and end with the oldest ones. And you will see that the, the opening one is the, um, the prayer for the second one gives you a long genealogy, not only tracing them back to Gormon, but also to the Echelig of Brega. And that occurs solely in the Four Masters. And you will see here that nearly all the entries occur in the Four Masters, or else in the Annals of Tonmacnoise, or else in the Annals of that we call Chronicum Scotorum. And these are the Tonmacnoise group of annals, which leads me to the conclusion that the Four Masters had access to a copy of the Tonmacnoise Chronicle that was more detailed and more annotated than any of the ones that survive in Aetlon, Aetig, or Cronscott. So there's information there that goes right back, I think, to what this aristocratic, learned, princely, clerical family were saying about themselves. And this is the first piece, I think, that we have from the pen of that family that other than what we may attribute to the scribal activities of one of them. And they tell us quite a lot about themselves. And a lot of it has been taken by trusting scholars, and you know how trusting scholars are, have been taken by trusting scholars as being a historical record. A lot of it is not. This is family propaganda, tracing themselves back to a very august origin. Now, they say they belong to the Mugdarna Magen, and these are, these are not first rate in the pecking order of Irish aristocracy and, and royalty, but they are solid, and they, they are around Dunamoyne, in what is now County Monaghan, but they also, there's um, Mugdarna Bragg, which are further south. And in the, in, the, in the 8th and 9th century, we find them united as a single, single petty kingdom. More important is who they say they are in regard to well-known figures. And these figure, the most important of these figures is um, at the very end of their genealogy, Karbuk, son of Gormon. And that is an abbot of Armagh. Now I want you, if you if you glance at that, I won't do any more about that. We come back to it. If you look at the at part two of your handout, the record of the annals, what I do here is I trace them back. 
about this is what they say about themselves in the annals, and we have a mixture of genuine annals, and then additions to glorify the family. I start with Moel Wede, who died in 1106. He was killed in a raid on the stone church of Clonmacnoise. Tough look. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now the next generation up, the second generation, counting him as the first, there are a whole bunch of brothers, and look at what they are. One of them claims to be, they claim is Corba Ciaran, abbot of Clonmacnoise, Moel Finane. Moel Ciaran is a builder, if that's, we can say that's a good thing these days, and he built roadways and pathways and stone, stone um, ways. And then the second brother, uh, this, the, he also was involved in getting compensation from the king of Mead for a bit of really dangerous activity by lodging his troops on Ishal Kiron, property of the family, that was also a church. He was granted an estate in land in compensation for this. And the, the, the third one, Gidecreus, is the Mac Cleric Isfar Buyenaven, the finest young cleric in Ireland. Uh, Cormac, another brother. Now, this is a very interesting one because this is the uncle of our main scribe. He was deputy abbot of Clonmacnoise. And he is described as Far Sonna Sivi, a happy and wealthy man. And he made a big purchase. He purchased the freehold or allod of Ishal Kiron. And look at who he bought it from. He bought it from the abbatial family of Clonmacnoise, the Eflatnane, and he bought it from the King of Me. So two, there were two proprietary interests, contrary proprietary interests, against, against the land that they enjoyed, and he bought it out in what you would call in English terms, freehold. But he was also a builder put shingles on the great church of Clonmacnoise et al. And he, Caelachid is a brother of his. And so you have a family that is holding high office and is wealthy and holds property and holds the freehold of a very large estate in land that includes a church. Now come their father again, Khan Namok. Uh, he is, um, we'd better be careful in translating what, what, what it says of him. Um, he, he was, literally speaking, it says he was head of the Kayla Day and of the anchorites of Tron McNoise. That's one way to translate it. If he was head of the Kayla Day and he was the man representing the poor of Tron McNoise, he certainly was no poor man because he, he gave 50 cows, uh, sorry, 20 cows of his own as a contribution to the house of the poor in uh, Ishil Kiro. 20 cows work out at um, about, 20, 30, about 20 to 30,000 euro in contemporary times. 
In other words, this man is a man who can give away 20 cows is really rich. And he would require to have about 400 acres of land to maintain that and another herd of 20 for himself. So this is a man who is extremely rich. He may be the head of the poor at Tom McNoise, the poor of the poor. This is not the county home of uh, Westmeath and Offaly. This is probably holy poverty, which, as you know, is a very distinct and different thing from poverty. Uh, it's holy poverty in the sense of poverty for religious purposes. Now, Khan is the man who is regarded all round as the central ancestor of this section of the family. And he died, and his death is recorded in the Annals of Ulster. There are very few deaths of, and very few events of these people's lives recorded in the Annals of Ulster, you will note. Now, he, in turn, was the son of Joseph Makdunkada, Anamkara, confessor of Khan MacNoise. And he was the father of Khan Namuk, as the annals relate. Now, there must be a question, at least in your mind, how come all these are clerics and they have children who inherit their churches and their lands? How do you do it? And you do it, the way to do it is, I'll tell you. You, when you are a young man, you get minor orders. Minor orders makes you a cleric. You can then exercise clerical functions. You can then be head of a monastery. You can be deputy abbot. And when you grow older, and presumably wiser, you put away your marital relationship, and you take orders as deacon, subdeacon, priest, bishop. And so you can have the best of both worlds. And the Irish were doing this regularly, and it was not unique in the Western Church. If you think it was, it was not. So this is how you can create a lineage within church and have hereditary scholarship and hereditary office. So Joseph, Joseph Makdunka, that died in 1022, his father was Dunkud Makdunadig, and I think we're still on to genuine annals. He was Farlegin Thun Miknoj. He was the head of the monastic school of Thun Miknoj. He was an anchorite afterwards. So you can always be an anchorite later on in life. He was the head of its rule and its history. I take it that he was head of canon law about the place, and he was the one who would have taught and professed Shanathus. History and literature is the best translation of that. And he, in turn, was the son of Dunaduk, who died in 953. And Dunaduk Makekathig, the, the entry says, was the bishop of Clonmacnoise. But there was another, he had a brother, Ianagon Makekathig. And he was the senior, or the 
president of or the head of Aglish Pyog in Clonmac North. And Aglish Pyog Little Church is a smaller church and is within the Clonmac North enclosure. And he was a bishop and a pure virgin. So here at least is one extraordinary character. And beneath that I put in an entry which I will come back to about Queen Kovrok, bishop and senior of Louth, died in peace, according to the Annals of Ulster. But there's a big long entry on him in the Annals of the Four Masters, and it makes him bishop and abbot of Louth, and foster father of Ain, or, or teacher of Eanagorn Mach Egerthig, and Dunadig Mach Egerthig. So here now, the family is linked to a genuinely historical and distinguished cleric. And you may think that they're trying to gain something in the line of glory from this. And Egerthuk Maklukarin, get number generation seven, is described as the um, senior or head of Aglish Pyog. Now we're getting very thin in the genealogical entries that are recorded in the annals. And I believe we have reached the end historically. Namely, that there's an agreement among scholars that the uh, Chronicle of Ireland reached Clon MacNoise around 9-11. So we'll go back behind 9-11. You have entries that are not in the other annals and turning up in the Four Masters alone. They look extremely suspicious. And I've put a line of stars across the page to show you where it is utterly, in my view, unhistorical. Because this is how they got themselves to Clonmacnoise, it says, that Aethergon, son of Thurbuk, who died in 835, died on his pilgrimage at Clonmacnoise. When you go on pilgrimage, you retire. You retire and you go to another church and you make your soul, not as a member of the community, living in your hut apart, but taking part in the liturgical functions of the community that you, has adopted you, and you're saving your soul. You are not bringing along your son to make a career family at Clonmac Noise. So I believe that here is where they link themselves to the glory of the scriptorium of Armagh and to the outstanding nature of scholarship in, in Louth. And number 11, Thurvok, I think, Thurvok was a genuine. He was a scribe and he was abbot of Armagh. But I think he had nothing at all to do with this crowd. So it is associating yourself with the very best people. Go one more page, page six. We come to Gormon, and you will see that there are two goes at Gormon, but the second one, that the four masters and the Pranican Scotorum say that Gormon of the Mugdarna, from whom descend Mequin, and he was for a year on living on water at the well of Fingen, and he was in his pilgrimage to Clan Macnoise. And he died. Well, if you believe that, you believe in Little Red Riding Hood. 
because this is reiterating a claim that is, I believe, I believe false. But if we take only the historical part of it, remember we're dealing with a lineage that has a longer history than the House of Hanover, and I count the present house in the neighboring island as the House of Hanover. It's just an astonishing, lengthy, lengthy performance. But they did not die out with Moelvede Makelekert, who got killed in the stone church at Clon McNoise. And I put in there for your entertainment three members of the family who are genuinely historical. That's section three, members of Mekwinnamok later than Moelvede. And look at what they were. Gile Onquivdad, servant of the Lord. Deputy Abbot of Clonmacnoise for a period. The next one, Kaelokid McCormick, Sritsenoid, Count Coverle, Tober Agna Agna Shanakasa, a well of learning, of history, and he was the keeper of the rule of Clonmacnoise, the resident canon lawyer, amongst other things. And he died in St. Kieran's bed a very useful place to die in because you go straight to heaven. And it gives, they give us an exact date for him. He died on the 5th of September, 1134. And it's about people like that, very important people, that such details are recorded. And the other one is, Muel Kiron Mokton Kormakena, son of that Kormak, a noble priest, etc., Learned, and uh, the, and he was the Ursel Hens Clune McNoise, the noble head from McNoise, and he too died in the bed of Saint Kieran. So now we know that this family engaged in creating a long history for itself, from genuine materials and also from imaginary materials, and whoever wrote. Uh, the Moelvede Makelechel belonged to a long line of aristocratic learned men, people with status much higher than that of a current university president, whom they would regard as a vulgar blow-in, I'm afraid. Uh, was there other literature? Is there other literature about them? And yes, there is. Because there is a story, Imak Queen Kovrik, or Shkel Sartrup Namwike, which uh, I've given an out, a little outline of it there. Uh, it's an ecclesiastical legend concerning the Queen Kovrok, Abbot of Louth, that I've already mentioned. But now they spin a story about him. And they link him with Inishianlaiv, uh, Inchina, which is on the Lanesborough end of Loch Ree, and his wonder, wonder working, and his dealings with the mysterious underwater monastery of Locree. And he's a very holy man. And amongst other people he's associated with, he is connected with the Mekwin Namok legends because he is described as a holy bishop, later pilgrim at Clonmacnoise, fosterer, teacher of Dunaduk and Enagon Mokegarthi, and some of these people turn up in different historical order in the piece of writing. 
I've given you there in the, in the handout a little account of what manuscripts this is in, and you can look at that at your leisure. So here now, not only we have further legend building, associating entails the Mequinamoth with the great um, abbot of, of, of Laos. Is there more? Yes, there is more. And I think this is a really daring piece of work. And this is a, it is a, a story called Brithen Koga, recently excellently edited by Gregory Toner. And what this is about is a story which um, it passes itself off as a late tale of the Ulster cycle. But most of the activity takes place roughly in the environment of Clonmac Noise. And when you look at the text and you say, see that Magnura, which is mentioned in the annals as a property in a state in land granted to Mecca in the Mok, in compensation for damage done by the troops of the King of Me to their property. And when you find also that Ishil Kiroin is the site of Bridhan Dharkoga. And you begin to suspect that all the places mentioned in Bridhan Dharkoga are actually estates belonging to Mekrin Namok. That's my suspicion. So here they are. They're historicizing themselves. They're turning themselves into figures, their lands are historicized as part of the great narratives. And it is a very interesting one that Ishal Kiroin should be, and I've given you some details there which I cannot, of course, go into now in this, in this lecture. It's, it's the land of Brian, Brian Moore and Brian Bjog in Drum, parish of Drumraney, Kilkenny West. It's, it's east by a little bit north of Clonmacnoise. So I would suspect that the places mentioned are, in fact, the estates held by McQueen the Mock. I think that is sufficient to tie, to a degree at least, to tie the um, Launhira directly and closely to Clonmacnoise. So I, you will not be surprised to learn that I hold that Launahira is a product of Clonmac Noise and that the subsidiary literary activity shows that that is just what it is. Now, there's a serious question to my mind about what this book purports to be. And scholars have read it sometimes in a kind of naive belief that they should be reading this. They should not. This is the workbook of literary professionals, and they would be shocked to find the vulgar reading that. This is part of their scholarly approach. They have, there are doublets. There are cross-references. give you some of them. That occur in, in, in Ali's libraries, says A, in other books. Schlucht lived with the Sloiner. This is an extract from the Yellow Book of Slain. 
line 5211, Shlukt San So. This is a special, a different passage. Mad So, in accordance with this extract. The Gneed in Imra Augdid August Liver Ale Korogut Ale. Other authors and other books do a different version. These are not tales that are meant to be read as tales. These are the workbooks of literary professionals. And if you think of the way your notes are for a paper, they're in no fit condition to be read by a third party. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming your wife reads them. Um, they're in no fit condition to be read. So we're looking at a workbook, and I do not believe it's a patron's book. It is the work of a professional scholar, and what H does is nothing to be surprised about. Now, as, uh, that is, my view then is that what we are seeing here is not a text written for the pleasure of reading or reciting or being read to. For example, a gem like Fingal Ronan. But the doublets and the CFs and the EGs and CF, however, they're all there. Except that they're not written in the way we read CFs and compare passage N and so on. So, we are not to be surprised that there are doublets in the thorn, that there are inconsistencies, that H is engaging in what a lot of very dull scholars do, checking out some minuscule detail for a long paper in a good journal. And he's doing a lot of that. Now, finally, I want to come to one matter which I think is interesting and I, I would like you to think of it. Um, since James Carney's splendid um, original work, and there's been much since, we are all now convinced that these great manuscripts were written in monasteries but we're equally convinced that the stories in them are not any kind of oral narratives, but they are the sophisticated literature, or the makings of the sophisticated literature, written by people who are themselves creative writers and authors. Well, I think that it is clear enough that those who wrote the who collected the texts in Laud Nahira are themselves clerics and amongst the great clerics of the land. But there's a serious question about the nature of these tales and how do they fit with a clerical morality, a clerical way of life. And here I give you a few examples that um, may strike you as being somewhat unwanted in clerical circles. Queen Maeve compels Ferdiev to come to her tent and bribes him to fight Cucullin. Here is here's the bribe. Her daughter Findover sat by his side and handed him his wine cups, and she gave him three kisses for every one of these cups. It was she who gave him fragrant apples over the bosom of her tunic. She kept saying that Ferdiad was her beloved, her chosen lover from amongst all the men of the world. Maeve offered him land and wealth 
and more. Finda were my daughter and Annelies as your wedded wife and the intimacy of my own thigh. Some mother-in-law that. I've departed from Miss O'Rahilly's rather coy translation, which does not carry the full sense of the original. When Brickrew's, this is, this is a text, of course, in the Launahira. When Brickrew's feast, in Brickrew's feast, the Ulster warriors come hot foot to Crokin to have Alil decide who was the best of them. And this is how they were met by Alil and Maeve at Crokin. Blonde, stark naked women to meet them, said May. With their breasts held forward, naked, beautiful, and many girls ready for lovemaking. I won't go on. But the offer was astonishing. And she provided rooms for everyone. A subplot in the same text um, uh, of the uh, Meshke Olav. Sorry, Fled Brickrun. The war of words of the Ulster women. When Brickrew failed to get the Ulster men fighting, he tried to get their women to fight. And this is what he did. The women had, of course, been drinking with the men at the feast. And when he saw them going out after heavy drinking to relieve themselves, he outrageously flattered each hero's wife. So there, and he said, whoever, whoever would be back first would be the best of them. So steady and graceful and slow was their bearing in the first field of return. Scarcely did one of them put a foot before another. In the next, their steps were shorter and swifter. In the field next to the house, each tried so hard to outrun the other that they heisted their skirts to the round of their thighs in the race to be first in. This is not the behavior of aristocratic ladies. These strong-willed, earthy women have been very unfavorably compared to the gentle, noble, and modest ladies of other European medieval literatures. And it has been suggested that Irish literature is heir to an older culture that gave women a more active role in society. There may be something to be said for this, but in the end, literature is no looking glass for society. And these tales were written and read in the great monasteries. In Laurnahira, which has copies of most of these referred to, we find the lament for Colum Killer, the vision of Adavdon, tidings of the resurrection, all sitting side by jowl with this kind of literature. Some may think it odd that monks should write and read texts of this kind, but one could argue that the paradox is more apparent than real. These tales are placed in the pagan past and one could read them as stories of women and men in the state of nature, before revelation, the teaching of the clerics, and God-saving grace mediated by the church brought order into society. But that might work. But scandalous things are related in Christian times too. For example, in the story of the, the voyage of Maldoin, Maldoin, Maldoin's father rapes a nun in the opening of the tale. Now, I'm not going to translate that word for word for you, but it's statutory rape. And the woman then said, this is a bad, bad time because I've conceived. Another great Christian attitude, is it? 
Now, according to the text written, text is where M passes to H. And if you read M, then the woman is a Kalyuk, a nun. If you read H, she is Mak Kalyuk, Ban Arkina Kila Kalyuk. She is uh, a nun who is the abbess of a church of nuns. Now, Ginevinius Loina, in our, again in LU, says, it represents the king as having two wives, and his, his social activities didn't stop there. Bitterly hostile to one another, Mwedan and Mugan. Mugan tries to embarrass Mwedan, who invoked God and St. Kieran, who duly protected the baldy queen by suddenly and miraculously providing her with golden, curly, blonde hair. So now, what was, uh, what was St. Kieran and God doing, protecting the wife of the king? Mogan was childless, and she was envious of the other women who were bearing the king's children, especially Ethna, daughter of the king of Conmacna, and another, Brea. Through the interventions and blessings of St. Finane of Moville, an Amok brick, Mogan in turn gives birth to a lamb, to a silver salmon, and finally to Eadsloina. Now, what can this mean? Or is the lamb the lamb of God? the silver salmon, the ichthus, the symbol of Christianity. One could draw the moral, and clearly, some early Irish writers did, that the heroic life is a delusion, that the overwhelming violence of the Ulster Tales is to be rejected, that it's the heroic life it causes bloodshed, social disruption, and these disorderly and wanton heroines are in the middle of it. More sardonic clerical minds needed no such interpretive props, new human nature as confessors do, and could use these tales which lend themselves to many readings at once for amusement, reflection on human nature, and indeed as a vehicle for their misogyny, which apparently they had in abundance. So there are many aspects to this and many unanswered questions about the interpretation, not only of the object itself, but of what it contains. 